Hey everybody, welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, as always, Carrie Parker, and we've got another news show for you today. There's been so much stuff going on. Uh, I promise we will get to some interviews soon, but there's been a lot of things going on. This week is a big one, actually, because uh, the annual hacker conferences are going on in Las Vegas, uh, notably DEF CON and Black Hat. Uh, and there's always lots of news that comes out of things like that. And I've got a couple stories for you there. We're going to talk, one of the stories that came out of there was Apple announcing that it's vastly expanding its bug bounty program, which is great news. And I'll tell you about that. We're going to talk about how some researchers found several election systems that were supposedly never connected to the internet actually are, have been connected to the internet for quite some time, including some swing states, some, some of the systems that were in swing states. And uh, we'll talk about why that's such a big deal. There's been yet another Cambridge Analytica-style incident we have not learned. In particular, Facebook has not learned because this involves Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. And there's been yet another data breach of extremely private information from a... I don't even know what what class you'd put these in, I guess. Hookup apps? (laughs) Um, Apps and services that are there to help people find... Uh, sex partners. So uh, we'll talk about that. The FCC has been telling people that they need to watch out for fake Equifax settlement sites. I'll tell you, uh, talk to you about their warning and how to watch out for those. If you've got an Android phone, you need to make sure you get that updated, which is kind of the mantra. You need to do that anyway, but I'll tell you about a specific case why. And finally, we'll get to our tip of the week. And this is something I've talked about a lot, but I ran across a website that just kind of made me shake my head and just brought the whole thing into kind of clarity for me. So we're going to talk about why it's so hard to opt out and what you can do about that. So that'll be our tip of the week. And so again, we got always got plenty of news. There's always a lot of things going on. Unfortunately, never a shortage of things to pass along. So let's not wait any longer. Let's get to it. First up, before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to uh, one of my listeners who called me on my cell phone last week uh, and said that he got the number from my website. And I was like, what? My, you know, turns out that uh, TuneIn Radio, which is one of the many outlets by which you can find this podcast, had taking, taken my administrator contact information and posted it as part of the information for my podcast on TuneIn Radio. So had you gone to TuneIn Radio and looked at the More Information tab on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons anytime prior to last week, I, I have no idea how long this information's been there, but it's probably been there since the beginning, uh, you would have found my private cell phone number. Um, so uh, big thanks to uh, my listener out in Crystal City, Missouri. Uh, I believe your name is Brad. I'm sorry if, if I got that wrong. But uh, anyway, thank you very much for letting me know. And he also gave me some ideas for the show. So uh, good to get the feedback and <laughs> very glad to know uh, that, I, that my number was out there and I've now since fixed that. So thank you very much for that. You can always, of course, find my email address. I do have a public email address that will does get its does get its share of spam, but uh, I do watch that. So if you want to, if you do want to give me feedback at any time, you can always find that information on uh, my blog, uh, my website, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. If you go to the about me section, you'll find my email address there. All right, so let's get to the news. So first of all, as I said, this week uh, in Las Vegas, Nevada, is the annual hacker conferences, and there there actually there's three of them. Uh, there's a B-Sides conference, which is kind of meant to be the anti-conference. It's a smaller scale, more open, less corporate. 
Uh, and then some, the really big ones are DEF CON and Black Hat. And I've been dying to go to these things for years. It's, it's really expensive. So someday I will get there, but, uh, it, there's always lots of news that comes out. So even if you're not there, they usually can find out all the good stuff that's going on. And, uh, they've got great stuff going on every year. And, you know, this is where basically hackers go to say, Hey, I've found some problems. We need to get these fixed, or they'll talk about systemic issues and, and how those kind of things need to be addressed and, you know, and the software architecture and the services architecture and things like that, that we are, you know, that are careening out of companies at breakneck speed without often a lot of good thought around security and privacy. Um, they're doing some other great things too. They're, they've developed an, uh, um, an election system hacking village that started a couple of years back and they're basically trying to find holes and weaknesses in our security system or our election systems, uh, which is really, really needed and very important work. And it's getting a lot more support. Um, Senator Ron Wyden is out there this year and he actually, I think he gave a presentation on this. Uh, so I'm glad to see that getting more and more attention. Now, unfortunately, a lot of companies are still uh, a lot of the big vendors that create these election systems uh, are not opening them up directly to experts to try to poke holes in the systems and try to find bugs. That's That needs to change. Um, and there's a lot of companies out there that are working to change that. Microsoft's got some interesting work going on. Uh, there's a company called Voting Works that I've actually talked to a couple times and would love to get them on the show uh, to talk about their systems uh, that are working on some open source uh, 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 voting hardware. Uh, and of course, the key to all, all, all these things is really is, is having a paper ballot, having a paper backup, something that we can, you know, a human can actually count by hand if necessary to, and, and then we could do what we call risk limiting audits where we can kind of take a sample of these things and make sure that the results are in line. And if something looks fishy, then we have the opportunity to go back and actually have a human count by hand, uh, all the votes. So anyway, um, so there's lots of great things going on at DEF CON and Black Hat, and there's always news stories and things coming out, and I've got a couple for you here. So Apple. So let me just read a little bit of this from this article from 9to5Mac uh, about how they're expanding their bug bounty program, and then I'll talk about what that means. After hearing rumors about Apple expanding its bug bounty program earlier this week, along with expectations for the company to start giving out dev devices like iPhones to security researchers, Apple has confirmed at the Black Hat conference today a vast expansion to its bug bounty program, along with opening it up to all. Up until now, Apple has restricted its bug bounty program to iOS, and that's, of course, the operating system for iPhones and iPads, uh, and limited those who can participate in it. One of the First big changes announced today at Apple's uh, by Apple's head of security for engineering and architecture, and I'm probably going to get this name wrong, Ivan Kristic, uh, is that the program will be op opening up to include all of Apple's platforms, including macOS and iCloud, which is wonderful. That's that's really great news. Going further, the expanded program will be open to all security researchers come this fall, and Apple also shared a list of some of the new payouts, which will go up to $1 million. The original iOS bounty program maxed out a $200,000 payout. Bounties for finding bugs that allow lock screen bypass or unauthorized access to iCloud pay, a, pay out $100,000. Discovering vulnerabilities that would allow an attack via user-installed app or network attacks pay up to $250,000, while uncovering bugs that would allow network attacks with no user interaction whatsoever pay up to $1 million. So anyway, the article goes on. But a bug bounty program is basically a way for a company to say, hey, we believe our stuff is secure. We've done everything we can to test it, but we know there's some clever people out there, including these, you know, a lot of these hackers. Um, and we would like to pay you to try to find bugs in our systems. 
So they're basically rewarding people for helping them find bugs. And of course, by signing up for this and agreeing to do this program, you're, you're, you verify that you're not going to tell anybody else about this, that you're only going to tell Apple. Uh, and then if you, you show Apple that you can do this and they say, yep, you're right, that's a problem, they will pay you money and really good money. So there's actually, there's a living to be made at this. If you ever want to get into cybersecurity, um, there's there's enough payouts there, uh, now to make this, you know, if you're good at it, you could actually make a living doing this. And that's sort of the point. So part of a lot of these bug biting programs, and there's a lot of them, and Apple's a little bit slow to adopt some of this. They've been, uh, unfortunately, um, holding back, which now they're not, which is great. There are several of these programs and some bigger names than others, um, but they're, They've kind of formalized this whole thing uh, so that hackers, instead of, you know, maybe selling this stuff on the dark web or to other hackers or maybe even nation states, uh, the companies are stepping up and bidding money on these things, too. Uh, hopefully amounts of money that a lot of these other um, uh, hacking folks may not be able to match. That's kind of the point that is, the, is they want to outbid uh, other people. And, of course, give, you know, hackers get a bad rap. A lot of times think of hackers as always necessarily being evil, but they're not. And that's, in fact... Um, that's the whole black hat, white hat, gray hat kind of terminology is that white hat hackers are security researchers, basically, who are trying to find bugs and things and then do the responsible thing by disclosing those to, to, uh, the people that own those bugs so they can fix them. So anyway, this is a very welcome development. I really hope some good stuff comes out of this and it could only help improve these products in terms of security. So, uh, kudos to Apple for finally kind of diving into this, the modern reality of realizing that they, as good as they are, they can't find everything and opening this up to other folks to help find, help them find their bugs and get them fixed before they become a real problem. Now, one of the other things that I talked about is election systems and our election systems are a mess. Um, we, after the whole 2000 Bush Gore debacle uh, with the hanging chads and all the crap going on in, in Florida, and I think it was Miami Dade County or Broward County, one of the big, swing counties uh, in, with lots of votes in Florida and the whole recount and all that mess. There was a big push by the government to improve our election systems. And unfortunately, they didn't really think it through. They just threw a bunch of money at it. And companies like Diebold and some of these and ESNS, um, which I'll talk about here in a second, were there to snap up that money and replace a lot of election systems to make them better, supposedly, but it wasn't really better in terms of security. It was more about usability, I guess, is maybe the focus. Um, but unfortunately, because, hey, computers are now the thing and everything's modern, let's let's make everything touchscreens. Let's make it all digital. Let's make it all electronic. Uh, and unfortunately, that could be hacked. And if it is hacked and hacked well, you would never know because there's no paper trail. There's no physical evidence for you to uh, evaluate, no forensics really, potentially, to figure out if something was changed and if so, how. So, um, and there's a long chain. It's not just about, you know, hacking individual votes. It's, it, it could be hacking the transmission of the vote tallies from uh, each uh, precinct to the, the central offices or to the state offices. Um, it could be hacking those systems. It could be hacking voter rolls. It could be eliminating people from the voting rolls such that they go to vote and they can't vote. That's very effective as well. Um, you know, what are you going to do about that on election day when they say, well, we don't have same day registration and you're not on the list, so you don't get to vote today. Anyway, there's, there's a lot of things that could go wrong here. And unfortunately, currently it's all proprietary. It's all for profit systems. And these companies are not opening their systems for third party independent review for security. 
and just claiming that everything's good. So anyway, let me read this article, um, uh, rather disturbing article, but not surprising about how some of these election systems that were supposedly never supposed to be connected to the internet, in fact, were, and many still are. So this is from vice.com, which is uh, associated with motherboard. And this is a little bit long. Uh, actually, the real articles really is quite long, but I would, if you're at all concerned about election security, I would, I would recommend you go uh, check this article out. It's on vice.com. Uh, and, uh, there's a lot of information in here and talks about what's important, and uh, but I'm just going to kind of give you the highlights and we'll talk a little bit here at the end. For years, U.S. election officials and voting machine vendors have insisted that critical election systems are never connected to the internet and therefore can't be hacked. For Let me just stop right there. So even if they're not connected to the internet, that doesn't mean they can't be hacked, but we'll leave that alone for now. We're talking about the internet connected part. But a group of election security experts have found that what they believe to be nearly three dozen back-end election systems in 10 states connected to the Internet over the last year, including some in critical swing states. These include systems in nine Wisconsin counties, in four Michigan counties, and in seven Florida counties, all states that are perennial battlegrounds in presidential elections. Some of the systems have been online for a year and possibly longer. Some of them disappeared from the Internet after the researchers notified an information sharing group for election officials last year. But at least 19 of the systems, including one in Florida's Miami-Dade County, were still connected to the Internet this week, the researchers told Motherboard. The researchers at Motherboard have been able to verify that at least some of these systems in Wisconsin, Rhode Island, and Florida are in fact election systems. The rest are still unconfirmed, but the fact that some of them appeared to quickly drop offline after the researchers reported them suggests their findings were on the mark. And this is a quote from Kevin Skogland. Uh, he's an independent security consultant who did part of this research along with some others. So he says, quote, we discovered that at least some jurisdictions were not aware that their systems were online. In some cases, the vendor was in charge of installing the systems and there was no oversight. Election officials were publicly saying that their systems were never connected to the internet because they didn't know differently, unquote. The systems the researchers found are made by Election Systems and Software, or ES, ES and S, the top voting machine company in the country. They are used to receive encrypted vote totals transmitted via modem from ES&S voting machines on election night in order to get rapid results that the media used to call races, even though the results aren't final. Generally, votes are stored on memory cards inside the voting machines at polling places. After an election, poll workers remove these and drive them to county election offices. But some counties want to get their results faster, so they use wireless modems either embedded in the voting machines or externally connected to them to transmit the votes electronically. And then it kind of goes on to talk about what the you know how this stuff is transmitted. Uh, basically, these things get online long enough to send up the vote totals, and then they get right back offline. The theory being that you don't want to stay online too long because when you're online, you're now exposed globally to anybody who can figure out that you're there and try to hack you during that time that you're online. So basically, what they're saying is, hey, we're only on the internet very briefly and just long enough to transmit the data, then we get back off, and therefore we're unhackable. Uh, so let me get back to a little bit to the uh, the article and pick up at that point. It says. But the researchers found that some of the systems connected to the Internet for months at a time and year-round for others, making them vulnerable to hackers. ES&S has long insisted that election man management systems are air-gapped, that is, not connected to the Internet or connected to any other system that is connected to the Internet, and the company insists to Motherboard that the diagram it provided isn't showing them connected to the Internet. And there's a quote here from Gary Weber, who's a vice president of software development at ESNS. He said, quote, there's nothing connected to the firewall that's exposed to the Internet. Our election management system is not pingable or addressable from the public Internet, unquote. And this makes it invisible to bad actors or unauthorized users, he said. But Skoglund said, 
Skoglin, who was a researcher, said this, quote, misrepresents the facts, unquote. Anybody who finds the firewall online also finds the election management system connected to it. He says, quote, it's not air-gapped. The EMS is connected to the Internet but is behind a firewall. The firewall configuration that determines what can go in and out of the firewall is the only thing that segments the EMS from the Internet. And misconfigured firewalls are one of the most common ways hackers penetrate supposedly protected systems. The recent massive hack of sensitive Capital One customer data is a prime example of a breach enabled by a poorly configured firewall. Okay, so what this is basically saying is that this private company who makes lots of money creating election systems machines has claimed, without any proof, that these devices are never connected to the Internet and therefore are not globally reachable by hackers. Um, This report from Vice shows otherwise. They actually have had these things on the internet and some of them for very long periods of time. So who knows whether, whether or not they have been hacked and are currently hacked in a state where they could do all sorts of things. They could, you you know, the simple thing is changing vote tallies, but they could do other things. They could, they could actually host malware that when these memory cards come and go and uh, that are plugged in can be distributing that malware to other systems as well. Um, it's really just, a could just be a beachhead for further action. So Election security is a really big deal. There's nothing more fundamental to democracy than how we vote and making sure that all those votes are counted properly. And this move to computerized voting has some advantages, but without a proper paper trail, without a voter verifiable printed output of what they have voted for that goes into a bin, a secure bin of some sort that can be counted later if necessary, we don't have secure elections. So, unfortunately, we're working that way, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of these election security bills that are have passed the House have been blocked in the Senate. Why? I don't know. Um, but it's how Mitch McConnell got the nickname Moscow Mitch, because basically he or and some of the other top senators have been blocking this legislation from going through so that we can protect our elections. Um, honestly, at this point, I'm not sure there's any, we even have time to get this done between now and the 2020 election. So that could be a real, real mess, but, uh, we've got to get this figured out and we've got to get this, these basic election security procedures, uh, and requirements passed and through Congress so that we can get them signed and get them put into action. In the meantime, it's really good that hackers at DEF CON and other, and other places and these other researchers are stepping up and doing some of this research and exposing what we what little we can find out about why these systems are not secure uh, unlike these companies claim they are uh, you know to me if you're going to be doing federal election you know working on something this crucial you've got to open it up for third-party independent uh, verification uh, and then of course they're just not doing that so anyway moving on so uh, last week I recommended that you go watch the Netflix documentary the Great Hack uh, about the Cambridge Analytica and Facebook election scandal uh, having to do with not just the U.S. presidential election in 2016, but also Brexit and, and many other many other votes around the world. You'll, you'll be surprised. Uh, so if you've not seen that, again, I will recommend that. Uh, and, and this article, unfortunately, shows us that we really haven't made any progress since then. Uh, this is from Business Insider, and it says, a combination of configuration errors and lax oversight by Instagram, which, by the way, is owned by Facebook, allowed one of the social network's vetted advertising partners to misappropriate vast amounts of public user data and create detailed records of users' physical whereabouts, personal bios, and photos that they intended to vanish after 24 hours. 
The profiles, which were scraped and stitched together by the San Francisco-based marketing firm Hyper, and that's H-Y-P-3-R. It's kind of hacker uh, leet speak, as we say. It's uh, replacing the E with the three. Anyway, Hyper were a clear violation of Instagram's rules, but it all occurred under Instagram's nose for the past year by a firm that Instagram has blessed as one of its preferred Facebook marketing partners. On Wednesday, Instagram sent Hyper a cease and desist letter after being presented with Business Insider's findings and confirmed that the startup broke its rules. And then there's a quote here that says, Hyper's actions were not sanctioned and violate our policies. As a result, we've removed them from our platform. We've also made a product change that should help prevent other companies from scraping public location pages in this way, a spokesman said in a statement. And that's a spokesman from uh, Instagram. The existence of the profiles is a stark indication that more than a year after revelations that Facebook users' data was exploited by Cambridge Analytica to fuel divisive political ad campaigns, Facebook's struggles in locking down users' personal information not only persist, but also extend beyond the core Facebook app. Instagram, which is owned by Facebook but operated as a mostly separate business, has been largely insulated from the privacy backlash and scrutiny that has rocked its parent company. Uh, this is another really long article, and I'm not going to read more than that. Um, but if again, if you're interested, I strongly recommend that you go check this one out. Uh, Business Insider sometimes likes to try to charge you for the article, so you may have trouble finding it. But uh, if you search on Hyper, H-Y-P-3-R, um, Instagram, and Business Insider, I'm sure you'll find the article. And of course, I'll have a link to this in the show notes. But this is a common practice today. These big companies who s- snarf up all this data and have all this information sell it, to third-party marketing people who take that data and munge on it and crank out other services or products that they sell. And so when you're signing up for these services, just realize that you're not just sharing it with Facebook and Instagram. You're probably sharing it with multiple third parties, and who knows what they're going to do with it. And a lot of it's only protected by paperwork. Someone says, well, hey, you know, I'll give you access to this stuff, but you're not supposed to do this with it, and they do it anyway. And then if, if we, the consumers are lucky, someone figures it out that they're doing this and brings it to light. And so it can stop. But a lot of times at that point, it's too late. Um, so just another cautionary tale, uh, don't overshare, don't overshare and don't use any more services than you absolutely have to. And another data breach and this one, these get really nasty. Um, you may have remembered that there was, uh, a big data breach with Ashley Madison, which was a web service specifically designed to help people cheat on their spouses. Um, it was, I think their tagline was something like, life is short, have an affair. Literally, I'm not kidding. Um, and that happened, oh gosh, maybe a couple of years ago now. I mean, but you can you imagine? I mean, so you've decided somehow that you want to cheat on your spouse. You don't, you're not happy in your marriage, but you're not going to get divorced and you want to go have sex with somebody else. And you find this service, Who's going to help you with that? And so it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like Match.com or eHarmony, except for cheating couples. Anyway, all right. So while there's been another one, and this one has to do with an app called 3Fun, which, as you might infer from the name, is, I guess, about people who want to hook up and have a three-way, maybe among other things. So let me read this article. uh, Let me read a little bit from this article from TechCrunch. It says more than 1.5 million users of a group dating service had their personal data exposed, including their real-time location, because of a vulnerability in the app. The dating site, 3Fun, bills itself as a private space where you can meet, quote, local, kinky, open-minded people, unquote. 
but the data wasn't private at all. Ken Monroe, founder of Pentest Partners, which published its findings Thursday and shared its findings with TechCrunch, said it was, quote, probably the worst security of, for any dating app we've ever seen, unquote. Pentest Partners research, researchers found the app was leaking the precise location, photos, and other personal details of any nearby user. Worse, because the app wasn't properly secured, the researchers found that they could plug in any coordinates they wanted to to spoof their, spoof their location, revealing sensitive information on anyone within any location of their choosing, including government buildings, military bases, and even intelligence agencies. TechCrunch ran the same test as Pentest Partners and confirmed its findings. We found profiles, we being TechCrunch, we found profiles of users at both locations, including their sexual preferences, including sexual orientation and their preferred matches, their age, username, and their partner's username, their bio, many of which included expansive, specific, and personal information on the user, and their full-resolution profile pictures. In some cases, dates of birth were also exposed. None of the data was encrypted. The researchers called the app a privacy train wreck. The researchers contacted 3Fun on July 1st to report the bugs. Monroe said the app maker took weeks to fix the issues. Okay, so I don't need to read you much more than that for you to understand why this is really bad. So uh, going along with the previous story and the previous admonition, uh, don't, just don't, just don't use these apps. Yeah, okay, it, it makes it easy. If you're into some different stuff, and yeah, it makes it easy to find these things, but you just... You just have to assume that that information is going to leak out somewhere. And if it does, what are you going to do? So the the reason, the, the reasonable response to that is just not to do it in the first place. All right, a couple more quick notes and then we'll get to our tip of the week. Uh, first of all, uh, we talked about the Equifax settlement last time and how you can try to get some money. Though I've, you know, like I said uh, in the podcast, don't, you know, don't hold your breath. Since then, in the last week, I've basically seen a dozen more articles on saying the exact same thing, which is, yeah, they say you'll, they'll give you 125 bucks, but if too many people sign up, they're going to have to lower that amount, basically divide it out. And if they do that, you're not likely to get much of anything. Nevertheless, uh, I mean, I signed up for it mostly because I'm kind of want to register myself as, hey, I'm not happy about this. And, and maybe, and, and because the settlement hasn't been um, agreed to yet by the courts, maybe because so many people signed up, maybe that will prod them into asking for more money or giving out something else of value. Because to me, you know, free credit monitoring is not enough. There needs to be some real penalties here. And um, anyway, we'll see. But anyway, of course, whenever there's something like this happens, the the bad guys, the con men, perk their ears up because now they know they've got an opportunity. Um, and whenever there's some of these things at the news like this and everyone's saying, go get money, you know, the light bulbs immediately go off and they try to scam some of that money from people. So let me read a little bit from this article uh, from Naked Security, which is Sophos's blog uh, about this phenomenon. Two years ago, we asked this question, will the Equifax pain ever end? We can now say that the answer is nope, probably not. The Federal Trade Commission or the FTC last week said that just one week after it put up a site for people to check whether their data was exposed in the 2017 mega breach, E-scum, that's a new word, haven't heard of that, as in electronic scum, E-scum have, <laughs> have put up bogus Equifax settlement claim sites. 
At the legitimate FTC site, people can file a claim for benefits available under the settlement that the FTC and others reached with Equifax. An estimated 1.47 million potential claimants may be eligible for up to $425 million in compensation from the settlement. The FTC says that in order to make sure you're not handing over your personal data to crooks, start your claim at the official website, ftc.gov, G-O-V, ftc.gov slash Equifax with a capital E, E-Q-I-F-A-X. So that's ftc.gov slash Equifax. Once you're on the official site settlement website, you can determine if you're an eligible claimant. You might shudder at having to hand over personal details, but you will have to enter your last name and the last six digits of your social security number. If the site tells you that your personal information was affected by the data theft, you can go ahead and file a claim. Take note of the URL, the URL, the web address. Take note of the URL of the administrator's site to make a claim for compensation and upload supporting documents. It's www.equifaxbreachsettlement.com. That is the only official website. All right, so that pretty much says it all. But I will say one more thing, and this is one one of the places where Equifax went wrong in the first place, is making up a whole different website name. Why would you do that? Why You already own the website Equifax.com. Why wouldn't you just create a site like breach.equifax.com? Um, nobody else can use Equifax.com but you. That makes it official. That makes it your site. So create a subdomain off of your official site. Uh, but when you create an, another name, a completely different website name, like they did this time, by the way, with EquifaxBreachSettlement.com, why would cr- criminals are going to see that and create all sorts of sound-like websites that are that are different, like EquifaxSettlement.com and EquifaxDataBreach.com, whatever. They're going to come up with sound-like sites that look very similar that are going to be fake. Um, and so basically, one of the main things that this thing says, if... You know, if, if any site you go to, and you should only go to the ones I mentioned, but if you're talking to somebody else who's done this or somehow end up on the wrong site and like they're trying to get you to pay money in order to get your claim, that is obviously a scam. So there, you know, there, there's no need to pay any money to get to get to be a part of this settlement. All you have to do is file a claim. Just make sure you go to the actual website and uh, avoid the fakes. Okay, and yet another Android bug, actually a series of Android bugs have been found, pretty serious ones. Um, and so I'm not going to bother reading the article at this point. Um, but I will say if you have an Android phone, make sure you're keeping it up to date, uh, keeping all the software up to date. And unfortunately you might not be able to do that, uh, because the Android market, the way it is, and it's so fractured and there's so many manufacturers and so many cell phone providers that use Android phones and all of them have to be involved in making sure that you get updated software. It can take you days, weeks to get software patches like this uh, for critical vulnerabilities. And sometimes if if your phone is old enough and that may only be two or three years old, you can't get them at all. Um, So, you know, Android is a, you know, from a feature perspective is certainly a viable option alternative to Apple's iPhones. But from a security perspective, they really just can't hold a candle. And it's not really Google's fault. Google owns Android. Um, Well, it's not in the sense, I mean, it's kind of their fault because of the way they did it, um, because they, they're acting as the, the OS vendor and then they have the hardware is, you know, created by other people that they can't control. Um, so, you know, kind of setting the ecosystem up that way in the, at the beginning was bound to make this uh, a problem. Um, but if, you know, so if you're going to go Android, I would suggest that you buy a Google phone, which is going to be a Pixel phone. 
because uh, at least that way, like Apple at that point, the hardware and the software are all controlled by Google, uh, and they will get software security updates right away. Uh, if you're buying it from anybody else, you know, if it's a Samsung or an LG or, or some other phone and you're buying it through your carrier, uh, you just may not be able to get these critical software updates. And these, these were some bad bugs that were found this week. So anyway, do the best you can do. Um, but if you're an Android phone person and you want to get an Android phone again in the future, uh, I would certainly recommend that you get uh, a Google phone because it's probably the only one that's going to be guaranteed to be kept up to date with security patches. Okay, and that brings us to our tip of the week, our little uh, news article that I want to bring up. I ran across this website with a rather funny name. It's called simpleoptout.com, and it's really <laughs> not simple, <laughs> and which is the kind of the point of the tip of the week. So, uh, and I'm going to be writing uh, a blog article about this, about this, which should be out, and my newsletter will cover this as well, and this be, uh, both these will be out before you hear this, so... Um, uh, you can go read the article about this if you want the full version with a bunch, uh, a bunch of these links in it. But I'm going to call it the tyranny of the default. And of, and this is not my phrase. I love the phrase, but I didn't invent it. It's Steve Gibson, as far as I know, invented it. Uh, so full credit there. But um, this simplyoptout.com site, the, the idea behind it is admirable. Um, if you've ever, you know, if you've heard me talk about how all, you know, all the terms of service and things that you sign up for when you, you know, join Facebook or join Instagram or use Google or iCloud or any of these services, um, there's a terms of service that you almost for sure did not read that you agree to and buried in that and all those settings of, for these services, you are almost surely agreeing to share information at least with the parent company and probably with quote-unquote partners. Uh, in other words, third parties that, like we talked about a minute ago with um, Cambridge Analytica and Hyper, um, make deals with these companies who have tons of juicy information about you to have access to that information as well. And guess what? By default, all of that is yes. You have, uh, by default, you are all, you're saying yes to all of that. Unless you try to go into the privacy policies and figure out how you can not do that. And unfortunately, even if you do that in a lot of cases, like I've looked at like Wells Fargo, I've gone into my bank and as I am wont to do, I've gone into the privacy settings of all these things and try to opt out to as much advertising and marketing and third-party sharing as possible. But even a lot of these, they, they'll, they'll tell you straight up, you can't opt out. If you, if you want to use our service, you have to at least allow this amount of sharing. Um, but they do give you some options. Um, so this simply opt out page has over 50 different companies and I'll read some of, you know, I'll just, I'll, let me just go through this list and I'll just read off some of the names that are on their website. 23andMe, AAA, Ancestry.com, Amazon.com, Apple, AT&T, Bank of America, Capital One, Chase, Comca Comcast, Xfinity, Condé Nast, Costco, Crate and Barrel, Ferris, Facebook, of course, Google, Guitar Center, HBO, Hearst, which is a magazine company. So if you've, you know, Esquire, Cosmo, Car and Driver, Popular Mechanics, these are all owned by Hearst. Home Depot, Hulu, LexisNexis, which is a company that gathers all sorts of data. You probably not worked with them directly, but they know you. <laughs> uh, LinkedIn, Marriott, uh, MetLife, Microsoft, National Geographic, Netflix, New York Times, PayPal, Pinterest, Reddit, uh, Roomba, the robotic, uh, robotic vacuum company, Samsung, Sprint, Target, 
T-Mobile, Twitter, Verizon, Visa. It, it just it goes on and on. There's easily over 50 companies on this list, and it's just a big, long list. And the idea with this list is it, it they've gone to the trouble of looking through all these privacy policies and privacy settings and trying to find for you what is being shared and with whom and what the details of the privacy policy are distilled into a very short, pithy sentence, usually. And then they've got links that, to tell you how to opt out. Um, so you click the links and you go to these places and you go through whatever the rigmarole is to opt out. And they do not make it easy. Uh, in a lot of cases, you actually have to go and fill out a form, like a physical form, and mail it through, you know, like post office uh, to opt out of some of these programs. In some cases, you have to call a phone number. And I can guarantee you that when you call that number, it's not going to be something like, oh, hi, Carrie, you want to opt out? Just say yes or no. Okay, you're done. It, <laughs> there's no way it's that easy. Um, they do not make it easy, and that's on purpose, which leads to the tyranny of the default. And that phrase basically means that most people never, if they even know these settings exist, don't look at them and, God forbid, change them. Um, and, and they make it hard on purpose. They make it hard to find these things. They make it hard to know that's even happening. And when you do, they make it difficult to opt out. These are all dark patterns. And so, because of that, the tyranny of the default is most people never change the defaults. Uh, for instance, uh, I've often said on this show that you need to change the default administrator password for your home router, your Wi-Fi router. Most people does, don't even know that exists. But if you go to your router's homepage, your little Wi-Fi router or, uh, at home hosts a little website that runs on it. And if you go to that router's website, and it's usually the IP address of your, it's the IP address of your router. So it's usually like 192.168.0.1 or something like that. And if actually, you, you can actually look, um, I've got a nice article about on this on, on the website as well. You can look up the default uh, IP addresses and passwords. It's also in the book uh, where you can find these administrator pages. And a lot of them come with the default passwords. And the passwords are usually awful. So it's like it's username admin and it's password admin or it's at password password, like literally P-A-S-S-W-R-W-R-D. Um, sometimes it's even admin and then nothing. Like if you enter admin as the username and then nothing for the password, that works. And you can see where this will be a problem, right? So your router is the gateway to your home network. It is the only thing usually protecting you from hackers on the outside getting in. Uh, now, hopefully this administrator password, this, this website is only visible from inside your network. That is a hacker from the outside should never be able to get to that administrator page. Uh, though some routers unfortunately allow that and they have it on by default, which is horrible. Anyway, my point is that it's just another default that people aren't aware of. And because they aren't aware of or don't want to take the time to find out or make a change, they're stuck with whatever the default is. And the default is almost never what you want. Hence the tyranny of the default. So anyway, uh, the tip of the week is I would, there's a few, a few I'll rattle off here. First of all, check out the site, simpleoptout.com just to see what's there. And, you know, hey, if you've got a few hours to kill, <laughs> then by all means, work through some of those things and, and start opting out. Um, but I want to, and there's a, at the very bottom of the page, they have some other, uh, some other tips. Uh, first of all, this is kind of interesting. And this is, if, if their site's not listed, first of all, you can add your own or suggest sites to be added. But if, you know, if your site's not listed, but you're worried about some other uh, service or website, here's how they uh, explain that you should try to find uh, how to opt out. And they say, go to the company's privacy policy by searching the web for 
quote, company name, whatever the company name is, let's say Google, and then privacy policy. So Google privacy policy or Apple privacy policy or Best Buy privacy policy. Do that search. Um, and then once you're, once you find the privacy policy, skim it for a section called your choices. And if you don't see your choices, then search for other, you know, similar things like search for opt or opt out or, uh, you know, opt out with a dash or opt out with all one word, uh, maybe look for share or disclose anyway, somewhere in there, try to find some, some of that key lingo, uh, that they, some, some cases, euphemisms that they use. Uh, for giving away your data <laughs> and somewhere in there buried in there should be some sort of instructions about hopefully how to say no. And you can at that point decide whether or not it's worth your effort to do so. Now I found this also interesting at the very bottom of the page. It's, it's a big, one big header. It just says install uBlock origin, which of course I've been telling you guys to do forever. Uh, and it says install uBlock Origin for your browser. It's free, not for profit, and open source. And using it probably blocks as many privacy concerns as opting out of everything above. So again, comes back to uBlock Origin. There's only <laughs> there's only so much you can do, but at least with uBlock Origin, you can help prevent even if you don't have all the right settings, uh, prevent some of this information from ever being gathered or leaked in the first place. Two other things I'll throw out, and I've mentioned one of these before. One of them's called a TOS dr.org that's terms of service didn't read tosdr.org um, and what that site has done in a similar kind of vein is it's gone to the trouble of reading through all the arcane long ridiculous privacy policies of um, common services and kind of broken down for you what the good parts are and the bad parts are and so you can kind of gives everybody a grade so you can look at that and kind of you know just they'll distill it down for you and 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 language that makes sense and is easy to read what the basic provisions of their privacy policy are. And then you can determine whether or not you like that or not. So that's helpful. And then there's one other site I'm going to recommend that just for the heck of it, and I haven't used it recently, so I don't know how good it is, uh, but it's called gethuman.com. All one word, gethuman.com. And uh, what the site purports to do is help guide you through phone menus or whatever it takes to quickly get to an actual human being when you're looking for customer support. Because as we know today, whenever you call customer support, you get all these robots asking you questions. And before I can send you the right person, please tell me what this is about or uh, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, eventually you still probably get to some tier one person who's really going to end up asking more questions. And if you're lucky, send you somebody who really knows what they're talking about. Um, it's really painful today to actually get a live human because they don't like to pay those salaries. It costs money. They're trying to automate as much as possible. But anyway, this site supposedly... Uh, if there is a shortcut, like if you have to know the right sequence, like you call the support number and then you hit two, then five, then three, then wait three seconds and hit four, you know, then you get to a human, you know, kind of thing. Or, and this is true, some of these sites are actually have automated listening systems that listen to your tone. So when you call into these sites and you get angry, like you're you're doing the voice prompts and, you know, please say, you know, you know, say this, say this, say this, or say representative. And you say representative, representative, representative. And you start getting <laughs> really pissed, pissed off. And maybe even you start uh, cursing or whatever. These systems are actually listening in some cases, not all cases, some, but these systems are trained to listen to your tone to find out how upset you really are. And if I, I, I guess if you're, if you're, if you're really upset, then maybe that might short circuit things and take you to a manager or take you to somebody who's, uh, specifically skilled in handling upset people. It's just, it's just amazing to me how much we're automating this stuff. 
So, okay. So anyway, uh, that's our tip of the week and, um, lots of little items there for you to, to digest. Again, you'll find all of this in the show notes and some of this will be in my blog entry about this as well. So go to our firewalls, don't stop dragons.com. You should find a lot of the information that I just read you there uh, as well. All right, that's going to wrap up our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. Uh, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. That way you make sure you don't miss anything. Uh, if you're really enjoying the show, please uh, recommend it to some other people. I'm really trying to get the word out and, uh, and spread the word. So um, I very much appreciate that. Of course, another way to, to help me out in that regard is to go leave a nice review on uh, iTunes or any place else where you find this podcast. Uh, you know, the more reviews I get, the more positive reviews I get, the more exposure I'll get, the more people are likely to find it and tune in. So I appreciate that as well. I promise we will have some interviews. They are, I've got several in the works. Uh, you'll, hopefully those will be coming up soon. So stay tuned for those. Go watch The Great Hack on Netflix if you haven't already. It's really informative. Uh, tell your friends and, uh, as well. Uh, that's something we all need to be learning about. And before this next election comes up, um, if nothing else, to just be aware that this is happening. So, again, highly recommend The Great Hack. Go check that out. If you'd like to support me in other ways, you can go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. You can find the information there that will help me out. Uh, and, you know, the book, the blog, the newsletter, all the usual stuff. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.